0: Um, Why don't you turn with me in your Bibles or click or however you get there to John chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. We're going to put all the scriptures on the screen for you. John chapter 12, not not really a normal Easter passage. In fact, I have never, I grew up in church. I think I was born in church. Um, I I can't remember. I'll be honest. I'm 40 years old. And so I have celebrated 40 Easter's. I have never missed a Resurrection Sunday in my life. Life, and I have heard um, a lot of messages around the resurrection, and and I've obviously preached some, and I um, just wanted to approach this a little bit differently, and I felt like the way God led me was a little bit differently, and so we're going to start here in John chapter twelve. It's not a normal Easter text, but we will get to an Easter text. So just you know, before there's a riot, just know we'll get there because we're gonna we're gonna back up to John chapter eleven. Um, but there's this cool passage in John chapter 12 that I felt like just the presence and the Spirit of the Lord really highlighted to me as, as I prepared. And it's, it's just a little scene here of Lazarus and Martha and Mary and Jesus at Bethany. And so it's about... Um, it's about six days before Passover, so six days before Jesus is going to be crucified. It's one day before he goes into Jerusalem, and people are shouting Hosanna and laying palm branches. Uh, before him. And, um, it's kind of crazy. You talk about how fickle we as humans are in five days, they go from Hosanna to crucify. Um, it's kind of crazy, but, but this is the day before that. And so he is on his way to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to die. And, and, and he stops by his friend's house in Bethany, which was a couple of miles from Jerusalem Um, And he stops by this house of Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Now, if if you've read the Bible, if you kind of know what John 11 is about, then you know these are friends of his and you know that Jesus actually raised Lazarus from the dead. It's an amazing account. It's amazing happening. I I hate to call it a story um, because it's it's not just a story. It's reality, right? It's the recounting of reality. And so we're going to get there, but there's this cool verse and I want to show you this. It says, uh, John 12 verse nine, it says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came now. Now that's not really anything new. Jesus knew what it was like to pack out a house, right? I mean, he packed out probably it was Peter's house and people were trying to get their paralyzed friend in. They had to pull the roof off to get the friend in. I mean, he would pack out a hillside. He would pack out a seashore. Jesus is used to drawing big crowds, right? I mean, when at this point, this is three years into his ministry. Um, he, he's done some phenomenal things and people, the news of him has spread. And so he's just used to seeing big, big crowds, right? And so, um, but anyways, so, so they came, but, but it gives us this little caveat that I love. Not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. And verse 10, I'm like, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. <laughs> you got to love religious folks. Yeah. yeah, religious folks. I mean, if they see resurrection, they'll try to kill it. <laughs> you, know, you know why I think religion is an enemy of resurrection? I mean, number one, I think religion is about control, and, and you can't control resurrection, but... I also think religion is an enemy of resurrection because I think it's really hell substitute. Because religion can teach you to act like a resurrected person and still be dead on the inside. Isn't that kind of what Jesus said to the Pharisees? Hey, you guys look like really pretty tombs. (laughs) Like you're all painted up like church on Sunday. right? You You got your stuff on, dead on the inside. I think that's the problem with religion. Um, that was why we kind of went at marketing the way we went at it this year, if you got one of our invites. Um, it, it, it didn't go without a little pushback, not from our church, um, from other blessed Christians outside of our church who are religious, and, and even our newspaper wouldn't run our ad, and, uh, which I thought was awesome, quite frankly. <laughs> And, and um, they, they called us and said, would you please run an ad? And we're like, yeah, we'll run an ad. Here's our ad. And then the little lady called, um, she called back and ended up, uh, Pastor Mark called her, but she's like, we can't run this. And she's very sweet and very professional and very kind, but she answers to an editor and she's like, they said we're not running this. And we're like, why? Well, it's in the religious section. Oh. <laughs> so I guess saying religion sucks in the religious section wouldn't be the best for you. So, anyways, it was awesome. We we um we ended up we went ahead just because we didn't want to protest. So we went ahead and ran like last year's ad, even if you don't like church. But um, she said your ad sticks out from everybody else's, and we're like, yeah, it's called marketing. (laughs) That's That's why we did it. And. Anyways, what was so cool is she was so sweet and kind. And then she said, you know, we can't run this, but I think I'm going to come to your church. <laughs> and so anyways, if you're here, we love you and you're awesome. And um, i glad that you're here. So anyways, but religion is an enemy of resurrection because religion can teach you to act like a resurrected person who's still actually yeah. dead. Um, so anyways, verse 11. Now, here's why they wanted to kill Lazarus. And, and this is really where we're going we're to we're start here and then we're going to end here. Because on account of Lazarus, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Because of Lazarus, because of Lazarus, people were leaving and and clinging to faith. Because of Lazarus, people were coming to faith in Jesus. I call this message living like Lazarus living like Lazarus. and so Now, if you want to back up to John chapter 11, I, I want to explain something to you as we approach John chapter 11. This is the story where, where they're going to tell Jesus Lazarus is sick, and then he's going to eventually come, and Lazarus is dead, and he's going to raise him from the dead. <clears throat> you need to understand something, that, that God is very intentional. He has laser-like focus on his purposes and his plans, that he is not flippant about anything, God considers all variables and acts with laser-like precision. And so when we are about to read John chapter 11 and this story of Lazarus, and I'm just going to take some of the excerpts because I couldn't read the whole chapter, even though I think it's awesome. Then you need to understand that there's not one flippant or accidental decision by Jesus or God in this passage, that everything is very intentional and that God is doing it, not so that we end up with the historical account how Jesus raised a man from the dead, But God is actually creating for us a backdrop. He's actually, in a way, revealing to us a blueprint that he is going to call every person into. He's actually revealing to us not not just um, that he can raise Lazarus from the dead, but that he can raise every person from the dead. He is not just revealing to us that he loves Lazarus, but that he loves every person. And he's not just showing us that he can resurrect someone from the dead, but rather he is showing us his plan and his purpose and even the process that he's going to call everyone to faith through. He's actually showing us his power to transform every life, to resurrect every person. He's actually giving us a revelation of himself that is not aimed at what is to come like Martha, will see, thinks it is but he's actually giving us a revelation of himself that very much is applicable today for every person. And so in John chapter 11, verse one, it says, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, we know whom you love is ill. That's, they, they knew. They knew they're standing with Jesus. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness will not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha. He loved Martha and her sister, and he loved Lazarus. Now, that's, that is great, but it makes verse 6 rather conflicting. Because it says, He loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, verse six. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He loved them, so he stayed. How many don't want to be loved like that? You don't want to be loved like that. No, Jesus, don't stay. Lord, you need to show up today. You need to understand something that Jesus is never, he is never and neither is God ever motivated by the urgent, but he is always motivated by love. The only thing that can motivate him, the only motivator that he has is love. For God so loved the world that he gave. And and if you think about it, we we know how the story is going to end, but but no one else but Jesus actually knew how the story was going to end. I mean, he's trying to explain it to the disciples, but they're not really getting it. And um, if you think about this, and this is what I thought about. Wow, the the discipline that Jesus had to have to wait. Makes it very clear, he loved Mary and Martha, and he knows they're about to face pain. But he also knows he has to wait. And it's an interesting way to think about it, but you could say it this way. He loved them enough to wait. He could have moved the way they wanted, And the glory would have been sufficient. But he loved them enough to wait to bring them into a greater revelation and glory. He's only motivated by love. We're going to skip down because then there's some talk back and forth with the disciples like Jesus. You can't really go down there because they tried to stone you last time. You know, it's probably not good. And they're really not worried so much about Jesus as themselves, you know, because even at the end of this, uh, Thomas Says, well, let's go so we can die with him. I mean, very, very full of hope there. Um, Thomas, his real name was Didymus. You know, he was the original Diddy. But um, he was T. Diddy. But, uh, anyways, anyways, backing up verse 11, it says, After these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I'm going to go wake him up. And the disciples said, Lord, if he's taking a nap, he'll be just fine. Verse 13, and Jesus was speaking of his death, but they thought he meant he was, you know, taking a rest and sleep. In verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Now here's another conflicting statement, especially if you're a follower of Jesus. Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad. (laughs) That does not ring hope in the hearts of your followers, like, Jesus, you just said the one you loved is dead, and you're glad. And now I'm following you, and you said you love me. And I'm worried about what that means. He said, I'm glad. Watch this. I'm glad for your sake. I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Um, God only delays his moving to bring us into greater revelation and faith. You see, the same thing with Abraham. When it says, Abraham didn't grow weak in doubt, but grew stronger in faith, giving glory to God. You know, you think about it. When you talk about faith, there's only one person that really sticks out above anyone else. And that's Abraham, who we know is the father of faith. But really, what qualified him to be called the father of faith? In my opinion, it's the fact that he could believe for 25 years for one miracle. And as the Bible says, not grow weak in doubt, but grow stronger in faith, giving glory to God. Right? God only delays his moving to bring us into greater revelation in faith. Now let's get down to verse 17. It says, Now Jesus, now he's on the scene. Now Jesus came, he found Lazarus was already in the tomb four days, and Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Now you you just got to understand because this is so much like Martha. She's the busy one. She's like, "Uh-huh, I'm going to meet him. I'm going to tell him." Right? And then and then Mary, you know, the more humble, she's just humbly protesting. So you see the aggressive and the oh. passive aggressive right there. <laughs> anyway, so so anyways, so <laughs> Because I know you would never act that way to Jesus. There's never been a time you canceled your prayer life because Jesus didn't move right. There's never been a time you woke up on Sunday morning and said, no, I'm not going today because Jesus didn't come through for me. He didn't do something. No, no. And then there's other of us that when it didn't work out, it's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm going to prayer because he needs to know how this has affected me. (laughs) Let's just keep it real. We're going to be here. Let's let's keep it real real anyway so so Martha says to Jesus Lord if you had been here my brother would not have died like this is her first statement not like hey how's the journey good to see you hey some stuff's happened kind of been sad hey did you get my message I'm not sure you got my message no it was Lord if you'd been here wouldn't have had a funeral It's interesting because when Jesus encounters Mary, Mary says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. It's also interesting because when Jesus said, okay, well, show me where the tomb is. And he goes to the tomb. People think to to give his last respects. The whisper of the crowd, you know what that is? He's a healer. Couldn't couldn't he have done something if he had been here? It's almost like they'd been talking about it. Maybe post it on Facebook (laughs) if Jesus had been here. You know, he's a healer, but he he didn't come. Now, I know for for most of you, you all live mountaintop to mountaintop. But there may be a few of us in this room that have had one of those if you adjust experiences with God. If you'd adjust, God, you you could have just... In fact, I would say it this way... Um, You know, if you're saved for any length of time, like more than four minutes, you're probably going to encounter at some point what I would call a crisis of faith to where God didn't move the way you really felt like he should have. Like you're going to come to that moment where he doesn't follow your script. And and it's then that we have to kind of decide what what we're going to do after that moment, right? Because if you follow, let me me help you with something that we don't always tell people in the very beginning. Today, if you commit your life to Christ, there's nothing greater that you could do, but let me just be honest with you. While it will change everything and while it is worth it to every degree, there's still going to be a moment where God doesn't follow your script. Come on, man. Amen. Right? Right? And in this passage, it's awesome because he doesn't follow the script and he actually brings them a greater revelation. And what I've found in my life is when God doesn't follow the script, whether the script was by his design or sometimes you understand we live in a fallen world where people get to make decisions and we even get to make decisions and God is not responsible for the decisions you make. Most of the time, we don't need to chase the devil around because we're our worst enemy. But here's what i found is that God redeems every pain we give to him. Yes. The only pain God cannot redeem is the pain you're not willing to offer him. Is yes. the pain you would rather hang on in protest to the way he didn't move when you thought he should have moved. And so Martha, here she comes. I love it because she says, Lord, if you'd been here. And then all of a sudden it was like holy conviction came upon her because the next verse is, but even now, <laughs> whatever you ask from God, I know God will give you. And then Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, Martha thought Jesus had transitioned into a good conversation on good theology. Like we're, like she started, it's interesting how, isn't it interesting how religious how we are sometimes? Like if you'd have been here, Jesus, you know, he wouldn't have died, but I know you can do whatever, you know, God will do whatever you ask. And Jesus says, he will rise. And then all of a sudden we leave this moment And jump over here to good theology. Because for most believers, theology is easier than vulnerability. Right? It is easier to jump to theology than to get with people in their moment. That's why when someone loses their job or gets a doctor's report or something like that, instead of getting in that well with them and saying, hey, this really stinks, and I'm sorry, and it hurts... And you know what? We're going to pray and we're going to believe. But right now, I'm going to comfort you and I'm going to sit with you. We jump to good theology. You know, all things work together for the good. You know, what also works is my foot. <laughs> so, and praise the Lord, Resurrection Sunday. Anyways... um. But I think sometimes we're too quick to jump to good theology. And and I think a lot of times many breakthroughs have been sacrificed on the altar of good theology. When Jesus had gone on to the Mount of Transfiguration and he, his disciples had such, had such great success at delivering... Uh, deliverance ministry, casting out demons, healing people that they had all of a sudden started a discussion about who was the greatest in the kingdom. It was the first pastor's conference and they were there discussing, well, I don't think you, but guys check this out. This is what I did. And then all of a sudden this man brings his demonized son to them and they can't deliver him. And Jesus comes down off the mountain and he doesn't offer them good theology because the father says, hey, I brought my son and your disciples who've had very much success, a lot of success at delivering people, can't deliver my son. And Jesus didn't turn into, well, you know, all things work together for good. And God's going to teach you something through this trial. And He didn't turn into theology. He stepped in and delivered the boy. You know, when there's a lack of breakthrough, I can guarantee the problem is not on God's side of the equation. Now it's easier to stand on our side of the equation and throw rocks on the other side if you'd have just been here. But I can promise you, and then what I love about the disciples is they didn't jump to using theology to explain why they didn't get breakthrough. They humbly approached Jesus and said, what happened? Right? Where did we miss this? Not good theology. Jesus, we want good truth. So Jesus says he'll rise again, and she says, I know he will in the last day. Um, Let me just say this. If you have a theology that excuses believing for the impossible, then you probably have accepted a theology that was created in hell. And I know that's, that's kind of a hard statement, right? But the very nature of salvation is impossible. So if the cornerstone of what we believe is impossible, how do people believe in the impossible to come to Christ and then accept theology that excuses us from having faith for the impossible once we've come to Christ? I, I have plenty of stories how God didn't do it my way. I have plenty of if you would adjust or why didn't you or where were you at, Jesus. But I'm not going to let this world define for me, God, and give me a theology that opposes the very nature of who he is. If you need faith that God does the impossible, then explain salvation. How did you get saved if God doesn't do the impossible? Because for you to get saved, he had to come, take your beating, take your cross, die your death, step, be carried into your tomb, and three days later, walk out of it. And by the way, he didn't roll away, the the stone of the tomb wasn't rolled away because Jesus needed a way out. If you recall, right after this, he starts walking through walls. He could have just walked out. He rolled the stone away so there'd be no doubt it was still empty. And I love this. I love this because then, then, then you look and the angel is sitting on the stone, on the, on the tomb door, if you will. God will build his throne on what was blocking your breakthrough. So with that, I can get to point number one. So we're going to talk about (laughs) Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And watch this. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now, wait a second. He just said, if you believe in me, you can die and you can live. So you never die. (laughs) Right. And to me. That's what this passage is all about. The fact that I can die so I can live so I can never die. So we're going to talk about that. Here's the first thing. If you want to write this down on a Resurrection Sunday, because you are one of those dynamic Christians who wants to remember everything that was spoken today, you could write this down. Number one, because Jesus came, I can die. I can die. Now, that doesn't sound like really good news if you don't understand it, right? Because he said, John 11:25, 25, he said, though he... Like if he believes in me, though he die, though he die. In other words, there's it's going to be a death. <laughs> it's going to be a death. Now, here's what you need to understand. Jesus came first of all, and I know we're going to talk about the empty tomb, but he came first of all so that we can die. And you need to understand this. Here's why you need to die. Because you were born in sin and death. You were born under the dominion of darkness, under the power of sin and death, right? And it it had authority to hold you there. Paul, in, in Romans 6 and in Romans 7, he gives a couple analogies. One is that you're kind of in this prison camp of sin and death. And what holds you in that is actually the law. In Romans 6, he kind of gives this analogy that you're in a bad marriage with a bad husband called the law. And so you're in a married, if you will, you're married to your husband, the law, and the law can only point out what you do wrong. It has no power to bring you to righteousness, it only has power to bring you to condemnation. And really, that was the purpose of the law. It's very clear. Paul says, hey, the law was given that every mouth would be stopped and we would all become guilty before God. So the purpose of your husband, the law, is to prove to you you're guilty. Has no redemptive power. Why? Because the law places the focus on you. It says you would have to behave this way to find redemption, and you're not capable of finding redemption in and of yourself. Right? Right? And here's the bad thing. Now you're in this marriage and Paul says, and the law's never going to die. And you can't get out of a marriage until somebody dies. And this is what he says in Romans 7 verse 6. But now we have been released from the law for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Here's what he said, you're married to the law, you're in this prison camp of sin, you are under the power and the dominion of darkness, and you're stuck there. The only way out of the prison camp is a body bag. The only way out of this marriage is a death. The prison camp's not going anywhere, the law is not going anywhere, but here's the good news, in Christ, you get to die. You get to die to what held you captive, to what holds you in bondage, to what holds you in condemnation what holds you under the power of death and under the power of sin, you get to die to it. It's actually very good news that in Christ, I get to die. And when I die, what had power over me no longer has power over me. See, um, there is no resurrection until something dies. And can I just be honest with you? I love grace, man. I love it. I love it mostly because I need it. Like when the Bible starts talking about the abundance of grace, I'm like, yes, Jesus, I need the abundance of grace. And grace says Jesus paid it all because I couldn't pay, right? Grace says Jesus did it all because I can't do it, right? Grace says that, that I don't get what I deserve. I get what he paid for. That's awesome. But my concern is in, 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 in modern day faith and Christian, we don't talk about dying anymore. Everybody wants the benefit of resurrection without the burden of death. And God can't resurrect something that's not dead yet. I remember very early on in this church, I was, um, it, it was, man, we were going through hell. I don't know another way to say it. Um, Julie and I, I mean, we are just planting this tree. We We're going through hell. I don't know another way. And so I would meet at 6 a.m. with one of our elders then. He's he's moved away now. He's a college football coach. But um, but um, uh, we would meet for prayer. And and I remember one day I can't, I drug myself to prayer. Does anybody know what it's like to drag yourself to prayer? Like, you don't want to be there, but you know you need to be there. I drug myself to prayer. And um, and, and so he, he said, we were, we were praying and he said, uh, Marty said, I, I, feel, I feel like the Lord's giving me a word. Well, you, when you're going through hell, most of the time you think God doesn't know what your name is. Like he's forgotten my address. Every prophet has misplaced my address. No one knows. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're setting your hair on fire to see if you can get God's attention. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and he said this, he said, I said, give me the word, and I'm excited because I know this is going to be one of those, I'm going to deliver you, and you got to know Old King James to get this verse, but I'm going to call you out and that right early. Like, that is Old King James language, right? Mm-hmm. i like, we're ready. We're setting up for a suddenly. I know that's the word that's coming. And here, He looked at me and he said, here's the word of the Lord. God wants you dead, and you're not dead yet. I'm like, you better get out of this room. <laughs> but I think sometimes we forget just, just the truth of Romans 6.6 6, when it says that we knew our old self was crucified with him that the body ruled by sin might be done away with so we would no longer be slaves to sin. Like if I'm going to win, I got to die. If I'm going to be resurrected, I have to die. There is no benefit of resurrection without the burden of coming to Christ and putting myself on the altar, and saying, I am laying my life down, just like Jesus. God will not take your life from you. You have to lay it down. And I come to him and say, I'm choosing to die. I'm dying to what I want. I'm dying to to my desires. I'm dying to what makes me happy, what makes me feel good. God will give us joy, but we have to come and surrender everything we have. So you can die. Here's the second thing. You can rise. He said, though he die, yet shall he live. It kind of gets interesting when you think Jesus is saying, you're going to die so you can live so you can never die. Revelation 20, verse 6, though, kind of gives us an expl- explanation of this because it says, blessed and holy are those who share. Watch this, in the first resurrection, to them the second death has no power. Mm. Right? It's kind of interesting, but if you want good theology, you, there's a, a first death, a first resurrection, a second death, and a second resurrection. Right. And here's what he's saying. If you choose to die now and be resurrected now, you no longer have to worry about death because it has no authority over you. You will never die. This body will take a break, but you will never die. You will just move from one room to a better room. Right. And so because he because he died, I can die. And because he arose, I can rise. See, if his cross was my cross, then his empty tomb is my empty tomb. If his cross was my cross, then his empty tomb is my empty tomb. If I died with him, I get to be raised with him. Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That word actually means resurrected life, that that we died and we've been raised and we walk in resurrected life. Now here's the question. When do we start walking in the power of the resurrection? Well, when did you die? When do you start walking? Because see, Martha had a theological issue that Jesus is trying to correct. And he's trying to teach us that the fact that he is the resurrection doesn't just mean that we're waiting for something to happen, but it means something happens now. It changes everything because it's no longer about where we spend eternity. It's about a power and a presence that changes everything today. Paul said it this way in Romans 8. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, it will quicken or give life. Look at this to your mortal body, not your immortal body. So this is not talking about at the end like Martha was talking about. What he's saying is there's something about resurrection that completely changes how you live today. There is a power that's available today. Dead things can live today. Hope can arise today. Joy is available today. Peace. Peace is present today health and healing are available today depression has to go today fear and anxiety have been defeated you can rise above hopelessness you can rise above brokenness you can rise above despair you can rise above a doctor's report you can rise above a divorce decree because he died you died and because he arose you can rise See, an empty tomb is not just an omen of what is to come. An empty tomb is about a new operating system that He has called us into by the power of resurrection that changes how we live today. <laughs> Romans 5 says If by one man's trespass sin and death entered the world, how much more through the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will we reign? In life, reign through. You could put through there. Through what? Through the Zoe, the resurrected life of God. We will reign. When do we start reigning? The day we die and we are resurrected, we start reigning. The time you have on earth, from the moment you're saved until Jesus returns, is all you're doing is practicing your reign. So when he shows up, we can reign with him. You can rise. You can die, you can rise. Here's the last thing, you can live. You can live. You can die, you can rise, you can, you can live. John eleven twenty six. everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. We started this conversation about living like Lazarus from John chapter 12, verse 9, 10, and 11. And it said that they came to see Jesus, but not just Jesus. They came to see this man named Lazarus. And because of Lazarus, many of them were leaving, in this case, religion, to believe in Jesus. You see, what you realize is, <clears throat> once you're resurrected, you have a responsibility to live as a testimony of resurrection in a world that's still ensnared by death. And what brings people to faith in Jesus it's not good theology on Facebook. It's not taking a foo- picture of your food on Instagram and talking about how you blessed it. What brings people to Jesus is when they can look at a living person and see the power of resurrection. And that is actually the responsibility of a person who's been resurrected, to live their life as a testimony of that resurrection. Because really, if you think about it, you know what we owe this world as believers? I think we owe them something, right? Because creation is what? Groaning for the sons of God to be revealed, right? This whole world, you know what's wrong with it? It's groaning. What's it groaning for? Not good theology. Not good theology, It's groaning for resurrection. Where does it see resurrection? In the sons and daughters. When we say sons, we mean daughters. But in the men and women, the sons and daughters, the children of God. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in me, uh, Galatians 2.20 says it this way, I've been crucified with Christ. I died. And now I live. But it's not really me living. It is Christ living in me. Where is the resurrected Christ? In us. How is the world going to see the resurrected Christ? It has to see it in us. How does it see it in us? Well, it sees it when we love when we're hated. When we have peace when we're persecuted. When we have joy even when we're tried. It sees it when we serve even when we're mocked. It also sees it When we preach the gospel, heal the sick, cleanse the leper, cast out demons, and raise the dead. I didn't know we were supposed to do any of that. Well, that's what Jesus asked us to do. Why? And why can we do it? Because the same power that raised him from the dead. You need to understand Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. You want to talk about a trust fall? He didn't raise himself from the dead. The Spirit of God raised him from the dead. And the same Spirit that raised him from the dead is living in us. And that is the same Spirit. You know why these people left what they had invested their life in to believe in Jesus? Because this world, ensnared by death, is looking for life. And they will leave whatever they're invested in when they see life. And the place that they see life has to be that they see the resurrected life of Jesus in us. It's in the way we love, in the way we forgive, in the way we serve, in the way we pray, in the way that we offer them encounter with resurrection and we offer them divine solution and wisdom that comes from God. And that is when Jesus calls us into resurrection. We are not sitting here like Martha saying, someday, some sweet day, we'll live forever. (laughs) Right? No, 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 no. What he's saying is, I've called you into resurrection. You live forever today. You never die after this. And now you live as a testimony of resurrection And you live in this world, the Bible says, as he was in this world, so are we. And we walk through this world to offer people an encounter with a resurrected Christ who is living through us. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I'm no longer alive. He's alive in me. And because he's alive in me, I'm never going to die. And because he's alive in me, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is alive in me. And because he died, I get to rise. I get to live. I get to live victoriously. I get to have hope. I get to have dreams. I get to have peace. I get to have joy. And I get to offer the same power that raised Christ from the dead to every situation I encounter. As he said, freely you've received so freely give. Go Go and offer this world. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, and offer them what you have inside of you. That's what he's called us into. This day isn't just about a day to come; it's about what we have in us today and what we have to offer the world around us today. Why don't you stand?